As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming, instead speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word in the Bible that we have that guides us and teaches us and for your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. And help me now as I speak to speak your truth clearly uh, for your glory and for our help. Amen. I wasn't here last weekend. I was away at a study intensive, which you can ask me about later. Um, but afterwards, I spent um, a couple of nights with my mum in Sydney, and she still lives in the giant house where she raised eight kids. And so it's very easy to get reminiscing with her about the old days. And at one point, she said to me, you know, I'm so grateful that all of you kids get on well together as adults now. And I said, yes, it's really surprising because when we were young, when we were kids, we fought a lot. That's actually one of my enduring memories of childhood, fighting with my siblings, <laughs> even physically fighting with my siblings. When we became teenagers, we, um, we'd settled down a bit, but we still knew how to kind of verbally attack one another in a way that created pain and even sometimes division. There would be sides in the family. Happily, as my mum has noticed, we grew up. And um, even though there's still differences between us, we really enjoy being family. And um, lately, we've been working together to support my mum and dad in the challenges of ageing. And it's been really quite a, um, a really good experience of recognising how we've grown up together. We've matured. And in this passage from Ephesians 4, what Paul is saying to the church is that they need to grow 
together. Verse 13, you'll notice he says, he wants them to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This passage is a sort of turning point in the letter. Paul has spent, if you've been here the last few weeks, he spent the first three chapters describing the new life that we have in Christ from a kind of cosmic perspective. We have resurrection life that was won through Jesus' own life, death and resurrection. It is enduring and eternal. It is a life of healing from old wounds and fractured relationships. It's a life of belonging to the people of God, the people that God calls together, his church. What a great and glorious vision Paul has outlined so far. And in that song, that last song we sing, there's the picture there that we read about in Ephesians of Jesus enthroned in heaven. And our life is secure with him. We have the Holy Spirit working in us now and among us. God's presence and grace is accessible to us even now. And here in chapter 4, what Paul does is he kind of turns the spotlight back onto us, onto the church. And he says, now here is how you're going to participate in this new life. You are to live a life worthy of this extraordinary calling. And maybe you feel a bit of a tension here. I always feel a tension when Paul does the switch, right? Because um, we've seen that the work of securing our life in Jesus is done. It's already been done. But the ongoing transformation comes as we open ourselves to the work of the Spirit. We cooperate and align ourselves with the work of God so we can grow into maturity, not just as individuals, but as a community. This is his emphasis here. And the outcome will be that we will have the full measure and fullness of Christ. And I think what that means is that we will have a lived experience of being in Christ, that we will become like him, that we will be prepared to meet him face to face. And we might think about this, sometimes we use the words holistic or having our faith integrated into our whole lives, not just understanding how it works with our brains, but knowing the fullness of Christ as we live out our days and as we gather as his church. And I want you to notice that everything Paul asks of us in this passage relates to becoming more like Christ, to being more godly. And there are three things that I think he points out, which is very handy, isn't it, when you're preaching. First of all, he says, we need to have a humble posture towards one another. That's verse one and two. Secondly, he says, you need to make every effort to maintain unity. And then from verse 11 onwards, he talks about exercising the diversity of gifts that have been given to us as God's people. So that first point is our attitude towards one another needs to be humble and patient. I wonder how you feel as you read verse 1. Let's have a look at it. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the call you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. For the early church, this would have sounded quite radical and countercultural, even unappealing, because humility was not really considered a virtue in the first century. It was actually a sign of weakness to put yourself below others. And we're going to tackle more of this as we go through Ephesians. There's quite a lot of this coming up. 
So for them, I think this would have been quite shocking to read. Maybe we're more used to it. But I think a lot of our culture still operates thinking that humility is a weakness. And maybe um, you've experienced this. Maybe in the schoolyard, you've experienced the power play that can go on. People wanting to be popular at the expense of others. Or maybe in your workplace, you've experienced this, that someone hasn't communicated what you need to know to advance. They've done something for their own sake and haven't shared what everyone should know, or something like that. Humility is actually a very difficult quality to have because it exposes you, makes you very vulnerable. But Jesus changed that way of operating in relationships. The story of the gospel is that although Jesus was the son of God, he chose to humble himself by becoming human so that he might serve us by dying on the cross. The creator, that cosmic picture we've had, becomes just another creature like us. The Lord of all becomes a servant. His loss becomes our gain. And this is the humility that Paul is talking about. Now, we might be more used to hearing that humility is a virtue uh, because Christianity has been around a long time and had a lot of influence on Western culture. That riches to rags idea is not so shocking. But even so, I think the humble posture is hard. And um, just as Jess was confessing before, I confessed too that as I prepared this, I reflected on my life the last few weeks and how I had struggled with humility. You know, Paul doesn't nuance the idea at all. He says, I'm begging you, that I urge you is actually, I'm begging you, be completely humble and patient and gentle. Put up with one another. This is the road to attaining the full measure of Christ. Do you find it hard to listen to others well? I have to work at it. I also have to work at giving up my way of doing things sometimes so someone else can do things their way. Sometimes it's hard to admit that I don't have all the answers and that someone else's insight or wisdom is actually worth more than mine. I definitely don't always remember to be gentle or patient, especially when someone's frustrating me or ignoring me. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I, maybe something's resonated there for you as well. The old instinct of the old life is to protect and promote ourselves above others. And it is strong, but it's not the way of Christ. When we come to know Jesus and understand all he's done for us, we start to see that humility and patience is paradoxically an extremely powerful posture to take. And that's because it brings life to others and to community. When we struggle to put others first, it helps to reflect and remember that we are on the receiving end of God's humility and patience with us. Without the love of service of Jesus, we were lost. We were isolated. But now we have new life and community, and we can extend it to others. I want to say that I think there is a great deal of humility in our church. I've really appreciated this. In the last eight months, I've seen it as people have stepped into dull and unseen work around here, um, when people have stretched themselves for the sake of others. And I've seen a lot of patience. I've experienced your patience with me. And this is really good, to be laying uh, down our personal interests for the sake of life together. And when we have this posture, it makes the next point so much more attainable, which is that we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. We are to be one church, 
under God. I don't know if you remember in um, John 17, before he died, Jesus prayed this really long prayer. And he prayed for unity. And there's this great part in uh, 17 where he says, I'm not just praying for the disciples now, but for all of them who will come, praying for us. He says, I pray that they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then the world will know that you sent me and, I, and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's a very interesting prayer. But what it says is that unity in the church is so important because what it does, it speaks to the world about God's unity. The Father, the Son and the Spirit exist in perfect unity and loving relationship. And our unity, if we are united, um, speaks of our connection to God and we are in him. When Paul wrote about this unity, he would have had in mind the early church where they were trying to have Gentiles and Jews do church together, which was tricky. If you read Acts and the letters, you'll realise there were plenty of things they had to figure out. What do we do about the Old Testament law? How do we understand that there is one God, but also three in one? All these things that they were navigating together were tricky, um, and cultural differences too. But, um, I mean, that prayer Jesus prayed was for us as well. And what has happened since the first century? Look at the history of the church, or even just at the global church today. As far as being unified goes, I think it's, we are, I can see people cringing around the room. We've, it's a bit of a mess, honestly. It looks like a bit of a mess. Within the church, there are culture wars, political stouches. There are multiple denominations. There are arguments over second-order issues, like what kind of baptism should we have? And how are we to think about issues about gender and sexuality? These are big topics in the church at the moment. And within individual churches, there have been abuses that have occurred that have split, torn people apart. And then there are just the smaller things of um, arguments over how do we do music or, <laughs> you know, how shall we do this process or that process, things that threaten to divide us. A common objection I've heard over the years when talking about my faith is people saying, well, how come there are so many different churches? Why don't you all get along? doesn't seem very loving. Have you heard this? And it's hard to know what to say in response. It's hard to know. But the thing about this passage is that Paul gives us the encouragement uh, to not give up. Do what it takes. And what he's saying is, actually, this is a hard thing. I know this is a hard thing because of who we are and, you know, the way we work. But do what you can to maintain unity. And I want to say that to us today. What can we do to maintain unity in the church? I wonder if you know that um, the Fairfield congregation is now bigger than us. How does that make you feel? I thought I'd mention it. You know what? It's so interesting when you... Just the last few weeks I've noticed they, they've had definitely big, getting bigger than us. And we could feel threatened by that. But no, we have to be so encouraged by that. This is our church. We are one church. And praise God that people are walking through the doors at Fairfield, we rejoice with them. Um, we should be glad too that there are many different churches. This is one way of looking at it and denominations because they actually provide for a variety of people. Sometimes someone will leave Mary Creek, not very often, but sometimes because they're going to a church that seems to suit them better. And I am happy for them when that happens because, look, bless, God has 
you know, provided something that is going to help them to, to be Jesus' disciple better for them. And likewise, people have come to us because this is a better fit for them. And so in a way, we can rejoice in the differences and say, we want more differences. You know, we want more churches. We want to see all kinds of churches popping up around here. We are one. We are all God's church together. The combined inner north youth group that's um, drawn from different churches over the 10 plus years from around the inner north has been a really good example of what it looks like to be one church and to cooperate and not be in competition. And before the pandemic, we had some crossing the aisle initiatives where we would visit other churches. And I would love to do this sort of thing again, to be thinking about how could we, maybe we could gather the churches from Clifton Hill for an event in the park. Maybe we could do something some kind of local mission together. This is us, this is what it would look like to really work towards maintaining unity and understanding that we are one church. What Paul goes on to do then is to outline what the basis of our unity is. And this is very helpful, right? Because you can't, we need to go, well, what is it that makes God's church one church? And he has this list of one things. He talks about our oneness as being intertwined with God's oneness, like Jesus' prayer experience expressed and he lists our core beliefs, the things that we are to hold as precious and primary. And this is very helpful when we encounter differences that make us feel very uncomfortable or seem insurmountable. We can go to the list. The Apostles' Creed is like that. I should have had it in the servant in the service today. But the Apostles' Creed is like it's like a list of well, what are the core things? And what Paul says is the core things for for that make God's church are these oneness things. Let's have a look at them there in verse 4 to 6. First of all, he says, there is one body. So we believe that the church throughout space and time is all God's one family, despite the variations that we observe. We believe there is one spirit, the same spirit that works to reveal Jesus and make us more like him and draws us together as one people. We have one hope, one hope that God has promised us which is this resurrection life into eternity and the renewal of our world through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is our one Lord. He is the one we trust in, worship, and allow to control our future. This is a key one. I listened to a podcast called Let's Talk About S-E-C-T-S. Let's Talk About Sects. And one of the common things that happens in a cult or a sect is that a person like me who's leading a church will suddenly make themselves like the Lord. No, there is one Lord. This is a good test. Who is it that we worship? Who is that is ultimately our, our guide and our uh, leader, Jesus? We have one faith in him and we are marked by the one sign of baptism, washed in water for the forgiveness of sins and that rising up to new life. And we believe, he says finally, that there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See how he's done spirit, son, father, and woven our faith and hope within it. He's capsulated that prayer. It's a beautiful and lofty picture, isn't it? I don't know if you ever have noticed online, sometimes they have the Ikea fails, they're called, or cake fails, but I'll talk about the Ikea fails, where you have the project that you're meant to put together, and even if you've read the manual, somehow you've built a chair with legs up here and legs down there, or shelves that just won't sit in there no matter what you do, all right? Look, this is the picture that we have. 
And the way Paul writes is to remind us that it's not easy, but we keep going because this is good. This is the thing. This is the point that we will be one church together under God. One of the reasons that I think this is a really helpful passage to help us persevere is because the people who are asking us to do this get what it's like. So did you notice at the top of the chapter, Paul says, I, a prisoner, just drops that in. Okay, Paul is someone who has really wrestled with being a um, leader in the church, so much that he's in prison. And he has gone through a lot of different conflicts with people. He jumps right in and tries to build unity. But moreover, Jesus is the one who's asking us to do this. And in the middle of the passage, there's that very strange little bit about the ascending and the descending. And actually, it's Paul riffing on a psalm, Psalm 68. You could look at that later. And he's talking about how Jesus is God come into our world. And uh, Jesus, you know, faced all kinds of opposition and disagreement among God's people. He worked for the purpose of a united church. And, you know, on his death on the cross actually achieved unity between God and people. That is the power of, what he, of the unity that he achieves there. He actually answers his own prayer on the cross because there was estrangement and he brought reconciliation. This is his victory. And the picture in that little passage about him ascending and descending is that he came to earth and his victory was through the cross. And now he has ascended into heaven and he is the victorious king. And what does he do? Like all those um, conquering kings in ancient times, he divides the spoils, all right? He gives out the gifts to his people. And the gifts he gives us are all the things we need to keep being his people, spiritual gifts, and the gifts that Paul talks about here are kind of the foundational gifts of the church. We might call them the word gifts. Apostles who saw and knew Jesus and planted those churches. Prophets who declared God's word and made it live for people where they were. Evangelists who called people to repent and come to faith. Pastors and teachers who kept explaining the scriptures in light of what Jesus had done. These are really important gifts in the church still today when we think about that list of core beliefs because they keep us on track together. It's important that we keep going to God's word. Mind you, they're not the only gifts. There are other gifts all through the New Testament that God has given us that Jesus has poured out on his people, the victorious king gifts like encouragement and hospitality, healing, prayer, things that are good for the church and will help us to keep growing and moving towards that maturity, that fullness in Christ. And the great thing about this dispersing the gifts after we've talked about the unity and humility is that not everyone has all the gifts. We just get a couple each, right? And this is a really good tactic because if you want to work as one body and you don't have all the gifts, you have to rely on each other and humility receive as well as give. And so this is a beautiful picture, isn't it? In humility, we maintain unity and serve one another with the gifts that we have and we receive them gratefully. God is good and this is the life that he's called us into, not the life of independence and solo live, you know, achievement, but the life, the corporate life of serving and loving one another as God has loved us. Let me pray for us. Our Lord God, we pray that by your grace we might be loving servants of one another and by our unity we might become a living testimony to your goodness. We give you thanks for the resurrection life that you've offered us. Help us day by day to step out more courageously than before into this life, knowing that you are with us by your Holy Spirit.
through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.